You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 66, The British Take Bunker Hill. So last week, I discussed how the Provisional Army decided to occupy Bunker Hill then actually occupied Breed's Hill on the night of June 16th, 17th, 1775. The next morning, the British, under the command of General Howe, crossed the harbor to land a force in Charlestown. They expected to push the inexperienced colonists off the hill and off the Charlestown Peninsula. It took Howe, though, all day to get his forces across the water and prepare for attack. He held back his forces, until all of them, including his reserves, were across. General Howe sensibly wanted to hit hard with all of his forces at once. That delay, though, lasting most of the day, gave Massachusetts Colonel Prescott, who was in command of the provincial forces on Breeds and Bunker Hill, more time to entrench and expand his defenses. He also had time to call for reinforcements, though those never came. Also frustrating was the fact that Prescott really did not have command of all the forces. Prescott controlled the contingent on Breed's Hill, where his Massachusetts militia had built the main defenses. New Hampshire Colonel John Stark used his colonial militia to build a defense of the provincial's left flank, but did not really coordinate his work with anyone else. Connecticut General Israel Putnam spent most of his day yelling at the infantry and artillery on Bunker Hill, but not accomplishing much of anything else. The three separate groups, however, did manage to create a rather formidable defense. Each leader seemed to see the weaknesses left by the others and tried to fill in the gaps. Prescott held a strong fortification in the center. Stark built a surprisingly impregnable defensive line on the left flank, defending the line all the way to the waterline. Putnam got his forces on Bunker Hill, primarily artillery, to prevent an easy path for the British around Prescott's right flank. So by mid-afternoon, sometime between 3 and 4 p.m. on June 17th, British General Howe was finally ready to make his first advance on the provincial lines. Howe divided his force in half, leaving his second-in-command, General Robert Piggott, to begin the direct assault on Breed's Hill. Howe would lead the other half of the army against the provincial left flank, where Colonel Stark and Captain Knowlton had thrown up breastworks. While the British had disembarked, Putnam had sent militia into Charlestown Village, where they took up positions as snipers in the buildings. British General Piggott's main column, lining up for the assault, took casualties from the harassing fire in the village. General Howe then approved Admiral Graves' request to destroy the town. Graves' Navy ships opened up on Charlestown with hot shot, 
which are iron balls heated to the point where they would set wooden buildings on fire when they came into contact, and carcasses, which are combustible materials fired from cannon designed to set buildings on fire. Graves also deployed a team of sailors with torches to complete the destruction. The effort quickly burned the entire village of several hundred buildings to the ground. The provincial snipers either burned or retreated back up the hill. The fire also contributed to the oppressive heat for everyone in the area. Howe advanced to the front of his line toward the provincial's left flank. Meanwhile, Piggott advanced his troops directly against Breed's Hill. Howe also sent several light infantry companies along the beach trying to get around the provincial lines and attack from the rear. Howe's planned attack, however, quickly fell apart. The 330 light infantry sent along the beach should have been able to push through the 50 militia that were defending the beach. General Howe had requested that Admiral Graves position a ship to fire on the beach, but by late afternoon Graves could not move anything there to be of use that day. Militia would typically panic and fire early before the enemy was in range. Regulars could then charge their position and destroy them with bayonet. Colonel Stark, however, had very carefully instructed his men not to fire until the British reached a marker on the beach that he had laid out. In doing so, the militia held their fire until the British were close enough to take a devastating volley. The British staggered back, attempting several more assaults, but given the very thin strip of land, they had to climb over their dead comrades, thus slowing their charges. They never were able to break the provincial line. Nearly a third of the British force lay dead on the beach, with many more wounded. Stark's American left flank held. Meanwhile, Generals Howe and Pigott had their own problems advancing the main force up the hill. The fields around Breed's Hill had a number of low-lying fences which farmers used to mark property boundaries. The soldiers stumbled to cross these fences in the face of enemy fire. Like Stark's men, Prescott got his soldiers to hold their fire until the regulars were well within range, then unleashed devastating volleys. He also used sharpshooters to pick off enemy officers at an alarming rate. Meanwhile, General Putnam had found the cannons abandoned by his own artillery, grabbed a few infantrymen, and gave them a quick on-the-job training in artillery fire. Soon, the provincial army was firing into the advancing British lines with pretty effective results. Howe realized his right flank on the beach had failed to break the enemy lines. He now knew that his main assault had to succeed. But the fire against the regulars as they attempted to get over the fences and reform their lines was too much. The regulars kept trying to fall back and reform their lines before advancing again, but could not force their way into the redoubt. Soon, hundreds of regulars lay dead and wounded all over the field, creating even more impediments for future assaults. Howe tried to order his field cannon closer to break the enemy lines, but the cannon got stuck in muddy fields and could not get into position. General Pigott's direct assault on Bunker Hill took fewer casualties, but also failed. Once he saw Howe's line begin to retreat, he also pulled back to prevent the wholesale slaughter of the British left. Once the British infantry pulled back, the British artillery 
renewed its largely ineffective barrage of provincial defenses. Meanwhile, Prescott's men were exhausted. Most of them had been awake for nearly 36 hours, having built their defenses the night before. They were beginning to run out of ammunition, having only what they carried in their cartridge boxes. Prescott had maintained good firing discipline within the redoubt. The entrenchments had protected most of them from enemy fire. But desertions had reduced the redoubt now to about 150 men, and most of them were out of ammunition. The officers found a few artillery shells and broke them open to use the powder in muskets. Still, there were not enough musket balls. Defenders experimented with shooting small rocks or anything else they could find to fit down their musket barrels. Prescott kept waiting for reinforcements. The few companies that had crossed the Charleston Neck seemed content to observe the battle from Bunker Hill. They did not even bother to start a second line of entrenchments on that larger hill in the event the British overran Breed's Hill. Only a single company of Connecticut militia, serving under Captain John Chester, joined Prescott in the main redoubt. This supplemented the line, but only with about 20 more men. The other person able to join Prescott, as I mentioned last week, was Major General Joseph Warren, who had recently received his commission from the Provincial Congress while still serving as that body's president. Warren had spent the morning in Cambridge suffering from a terrible migraine headache, but he was determined to join the fight, despite the fact that everyone thought he was too valuable to risk on the battlefield. But, as I said, Warren said he could not ask other men to risk their lives if he would not do the same, and he wanted to be where the fighting was most dangerous. He acquired a musket and joined Prescott in the redoubt, and again, although he outranked Colonel Prescott, he left Prescott in command. Despite the abysmal performance of the provincial artillery, they did provide Prescott with a little support. Captain Trevitt was the only artillery officer that day to make a pretty good account of himself. He disobeyed Colonel Gridley's orders to remain off of Charlestown Peninsula and to fire at the Navy from the relative safety of Cobble Hill. Instead, Trevitt brought two field cannon across Bunker Hill, passed the redoubt on Breed's Hill, and set up defensive fletches just to the east of the redoubt on Prescott's left flank. From there, his crews could bring effective fire against the regulars trying to storm the redoubt. According to some accounts, General Putnam also convinced another artillery crew to move down from Bunker Hill and set up a defensive position on Prescott's right, just to the west of the redoubt. Although the inexperienced crews could not fire very quickly, they did contribute to the fire against the regulars trying to take Breed's Hill. Now back in the British lines, as soon as the regulars staggered back to the shore, Howe almost immediately began reforming his ranks for a second assault. The regulars began their second assault right away in hopes that the enemy would not have time to reinforce or reposition. The officers reformed the lines and made their second charge up Breed's Hill. Because ammunition was running low, Prescott ordered his provincials to wait until the British were within 30 yards of the redoubt. Later retellings give the famous line, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. But given that these accounts came much later, it's really unclear if Prescott ever really spoke those words. Whatever the words he did use, though, Prescott got his men to hold their fire 
until the regulars were almost upon them. He then unleashed what became some of the most brutal and devastating fire of the day. The regulars tried to hold their ground and storm forward, but the provincials kept up a three-line volley fire, meaning that a line fired every ten seconds while the other two lines reloaded. Some British companies took 90% casualties. By one account, some regulars began stacking up their own dead to use as a defense against the withering fire. One American sharpshooter in a tree above the redoubt did his best to pick off officers with deadly accuracy. He had several men below him reloading and passing him a loaded rifle, allowing him to take shots with great rapidity. It is estimated that this one shooter alone took out about 20 officers before the enemy dispatched him. After about 30 minutes of brutal fighting, the British staggered back in retreat for a second time. One of the few regulars still standing on Breed's Hill was General Howe himself, who somehow found himself amazingly alive as everyone around him had fallen. Stunned by this repulse, Howe remained standing, then slowly picked his way back down the hill, stepping over the hundreds of bodies that littered his path. Now, General Howe had to accept that his first two attempted assaults were complete failures. The provincials had held their ground contrary to all conventional wisdom. His own regulars had been unable to keep their lines or withhold fire until within range, so he decided to make a few changes for a third assault. First, he finally got his artillery within range of the enemy lines. British grapeshot tore into many provincials in and around the redoubt. Howe also organized his men into five columns rather than lines. Now, normally, marching columns into battle is a bad idea, since a single cannonball could rip through most of your column. But the provincials really did not have any effective artillery, and the few they did have were off to the sides. Using columns left gaps between the soldiers so they could more easily get around the impediments while advancing. He ordered his remaining exhausted and overheated regulars to remove their packs and any other encumbrances. He also ordered his soldiers not to load their guns. He did not want them stopping to fire and breaking stride. This would be a bayonet assault only. Back inside the provincial redoubt, Colonel Prescott had a few more men now, but these men were the men who had been protecting his flanks. Those who were still alive moved inside to get away from the British artillery fire. This time, Prescott ordered his men to withhold fire until the enemy was within 15 yards. The regulars got so close that many thought the provincials had finally retreated and had abandoned the redoubt. Instead, the provincials gave the regulars another deadly volley. The British took heavy casualties but continued forward storming the redoubt, shouting, Fight, conquer, or die. The provincials had killed most of the British officers, so confusion reigned. Regulars got pinned down behind the final wall as both sides continued to fire. One of the field commanders at the lead of the regulars was Major Pitcairn, the same Marine who had commanded the regulars on Lexington Green a few months earlier. Major Pitcairn desperately charged his Marines into the withering fire, taking a mortal wound to the chest. 
Soon, though, provincial fire slacked as they really had no more ammunition. The regulars swarmed through the redoubt, expecting the provincials to surrender or flee. But those provincials who had not deserted were the toughest of the lot. They continued fighting hand-to-hand, using their guns as clubs. Finally, Prescott and Warren called for a retreat. General Warren used his sword to fight hand-to-hand as the soldiers pulled out. Warren was determined to be the last man out of the redoubt. As the men retreated, Warren called for one last volley, and at that moment a British officer's aide pulled a pistol and fired, shattering Warren's skull and killing him instantly. Just to be sure, though, a group of grenadiers bayoneted his body repeatedly. The regulars, angry at the high price they paid to take the hill, were in no mood to accept any surrenders, even if anyone tried. The provincials took most of their casualties of the day during the retreat. The British fired repeated volleys as the survivors ran across the open field, escaping Breed's Hill and moving up Bunker Hill. On the top of Bunker Hill, General Putnam attempted to rally a second line. But his best efforts could not stem the panicked retreat over Bunker Hill and back across Charlestown Neck. Now, having captured the defensives on Breed's Hill, General Howe decided not to pursue the retreating provincials. The British Army was in disarray, and most of his officers were dead or wounded. It was now near evening. General Clinton had crossed Charlestown without orders, bringing even more reinforcements. But they were too late to engage. The remaining provincial forces retreated across Charlestown Neck back toward Cambridge, leaving the peninsula completely under British control. The Battle of Bunker Hill was over. Now, Bunker Hill is considered a British victory because the regulars successfully took the hill and took control of the Charlestown Peninsula. But it was a costly victory. The British suffered more than a thousand dead and wounded, and British officers took an especially big hit with over 80 killed or wounded. If you don't count Clinton's late arrivals, that's a nearly 50% casualty rate. Generals Howe and Pigott both of whom led charges, survived unscathed, though all of Howe's twelve aides who marched alongside him were killed or wounded. While the British won the battle, they learned that the provincials would stand and fight. Like British leaders before them, the new generals now understood taming the American rebellion would be no easy task. In a letter following the battle, General Gage wrote, The loss we have sustained is greater than we can bear. Small armies can't afford such losses, especially when the advantage gained tends to little more than the gaining of a post. End quote. Now, the Americans also took about 450 casualties that day. Only about 30 of those were taken prisoner, and 20 of those 30 died in captivity, likely due to serious wounds before capture. Although over 3,000 provincials claimed to participate in the battle in some way, there were never even 1,000 men opposing the British assault at any point in the battle. So, as a percentage, casualty rates for the Americans who actually fought on Breed's Hill was pretty high. General Gage had planned to take Dorchester Heights following the capture of Bunker Hill, but the high casualty rates from the battle changed his mind. 
his army would occupy and entrench Bunker Hill, but it would not attempt to take any more land from the provincial army. On the colonial side, the most painful loss for the provincials was the death of General Warren. James Warren would replace him as president of the Provincial Congress. Now, James was no close relation to Joseph, but he had married Mercy Otis Warren, the sister of the famous James Otis, the man who had played such a large role over many years in the events leading to the fighting in Boston. The British guards on Charlestown Neck eventually put up artillery to prevent any attempted counterattack. The provincials fortified entrenchments between the Neck and Cambridge to stem another British assault. They also fortified their defenses in Roxbury, still expecting the British to attempt to take Dorchester Heights. Colonel Gridley oversaw these new defenses, but received assistance from a new source, a Boston bookstore owner named Henry Knox. Now, Knox had long been a son of liberty and active in pre-war Boston. Despite having no actual military experience, Knox had read all about military engineering and artillery and was ready to put his learning to work. On the British side, General Gage decided against any further assaults for now. Both armies buried their dead and treated their wounded, a larger percentage of which would die over the next few weeks given the state of military medicine. Many British officers blamed their defeat on the poor performance of the regulars. And that poor performance, many argued, reflected poor training and drill, which in turn reflected on the officers. Ultimately, the commanding general Gage was to blame and would lose his command as a result of the losses at Bunker Hill. But that decision was still months away. Instead, the victorious American commander would be the next one to be replaced. And we'll see that next week when the Americans get a new commander-in-chief, General George Washington. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, and welcome back to another American Revolution podcast, Book Recommendation. Before I get to this week's recommendation, I want to thank everyone for all of your helpful comments. I love getting feedback it hopefully will lead to improvement in future episodes. Now, several listeners noticed that my episode on Machias should have been an episode on Machias, so I really blew that one. They also mentioned that I described General Howe as a Viscount, when in fact he is a Viscount. I also mispronounced 
and I don't even remember how I originally pronounced it, Newfoundland, I guess, or something like that. In trying to find the correct pronunciation, I stumbled across an internet debate about whether it should really be Newfoundland or Newfoundland. I'm still not sure which is correct, but hopefully you all know I'm talking about that place just east of Quebec and north of Nova Scotia. As much as I strive for accuracy in all things, I definitely plead guilty to a weakness in mispronunciations. Most of my learning comes from books, so spelling shouldn't be a problem. But pronouncing uncommon words, well, I've still got a way to go in that department. I have caught a few other errors in past episodes or had them pointed out by others. I can easily correct the written versions on my blog, even if correcting the recordings is too difficult and time-consuming. Sorry, but I'm always pushing forward. It's enough of a struggle to get a new episode out every week, so I'm probably just going to have to live with those errors in the old episodes. But if I flub anything else, please send me a correction. I will do my best to correct things where possible. And on that point, if you want to reach out to me, you can always email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or join my Facebook group, American Revolution Podcast. Remember, there are two of those with the same name, so make sure you join the right Facebook group. You can also follow me on Twitter, at amrevpodcast, or leave comments at my blog, which is blog.amrevpodcast.com. So, whatever mode of communication you prefer, keep those comments coming. It can only help me improve. Also, one final reminder for those of you who keep current on listening to this podcast, I will be at the Red Bank Revolutionary War Reenactment next week, October 21st, 2018. It's in New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia. It should be a fun day with lots to do for the whole family, including a reenactment of the Battle of Fort Mercer. I'm looking forward to it, and if you want to meet me there, let me know. All right, on to this week's book recommendation. Because this week's episode was part two of the Battle of Bunker Hill, I get an opportunity to recommend a second book dedicated to this battle. Now, there are at least a half a dozen books that cover the Battle of Bunker Hill very well. It's a popular battle with historians. Last week, I recommended Philbrook's book about Bunker Hill. I could also give honorable mentions to the classic 1960 book, Now We Are Enemies, by Thomas Fleming and the more recent, With Fire and Sword, by James Nelson. But my pick of the week this week is The Whites of Their Eyes, by Paul Lockhart. This 2011 book gives good coverage to both the battle itself and the politics leading up to and following the battle. I found it very descriptive and captivating, with its narrative style that engages the reader. It's well over 400 pages, and 90% of that is text not hundreds of pages of notes and index. So there's plenty of good information for the most detailed, hungry reader. A Lockhart is a college professor who has written a number of other books on American and European history. His other works on the Revolutionary War era include a book about General von Steuben at Valley Forge, as well as a book on George Washington. And just before signing off this week, I want to go off on one other tangent, which has nothing to do with anything particularly, but I looked up pricing for Lockhart's book on Amazon. You can get the Kindle book for $12, but you can buy a used copy of a hardback for only $2. 
And even after adding in shipping, the paper copy of the book is half the price of the Kindle. Now, this is just a personal rant of mine, but I know ebooks are convenient, but I find it crazy that publishers can get away with charging so much more than hard copy costs. And one other thing which just blew my mind at the timing of my recording this, Amazon only had one paperback copy of Lockhart's book. And the pricing of that was, yeah, get this, $961.87 for a used paperback. Now, first, that seems crazy high. I'm not sure how they got to that. And second, how on earth did they come up with that very specific price? I'm sure there must be some algorithm that Amazon uses, but let's leave all that aside and just say the best deal if you want to buy the book is a used hardback for about $2. Anyway, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.